And we welcome you to the Tuesday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. Uh, Longtime listeners to the morning show uh, may recall me saying on more than one occasion that uh, one of the only lines of work that I really envy uh, is that of the documentarian. And I really enjoy, maybe more than anything else with this program, interviewing talented documentarians about their films. And I actually I look forward to today's program very, very much because we're going to be talking about two outstanding documentaries that recently aired on PBS and that are uh, currently still available uh, to be streamed via, via a PBS.org. And they are films about two of the most important figures uh, in our nation's history who both happen to be uh, African-American. One of the films, Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom. The other, Becoming Frederick Douglass. And uh, I am so happy to be able to speak with uh, Nicole London, who had uh, a hand in both of these wonderful films. As writer, co-producer, co-director of the Harriet Tubman film, co-producer, co-director of Becoming Frederick Douglass. And uh, we'll spend the next few minutes uh, talking with her about both of these remarkable films and the stories they tell of two remarkable Americans. Nicole London, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you so much, Gregory. It's a pleasure to be here. I realize now that in preparing for this uh, interview by watching both of these shows, I neglected to do my homework when it comes to you and your career. (laughs) Uh, I wonder if we could start by hearing a little bit about how you got into uh, the business of documentary films and, uh, and some of the other things that you have done before these two particular films we're talking about today? Um, sure. It's, it's not a thing that I had um, originally set out to pursue when I went to college. I went to um, uh, school in Baltimore, Johns Hopkins, and I was pre-med at the time. Um, not a very good pre-med student, I, I might add. No. <laughs> um, but upon graduating, I did some research, you know, medical research, and I decided that that wasn't the path that I wanted for myself. Um, ultimately, I figured out that I wanted to work in television, so I went to broadcasting school. And um, very soon after that, I got my first job at a PBS show, uh, To the Contrary, in D.C. And since then, I've been almost steadily working with PBS, um, almost exclusively. Um, my first documentary that I had a hand in was Broadway, The Golden Age. That was about 2002. 2003, um, before I had been kind of in public affairs television, but I decided I liked the longer format of documentary, and since, since then, I've been, this has been my home, documentary film, and um, I've never regretted it or looked back. Hmm. Tell us about the specific way in which you came to have a hand in both of these films, the one about Harriet Tubman and the other about Frederick Douglass. Um. So MPT had uh, realized, now in public television, had realized that they wanted to highlight two of their, arguably some of their, two of their most famous, famous um, sons and daughters, uh, Frederick Douglass and Harry Tubman. And I think that they realized that here was a place um, that had birthed two people at the same place in the same time and like at the same location of Maryland that had, had such a huge impact on American history. And they wanted to kind of bring that forward, that Maryland was probably the only place that their story could have been possible. So they had um, reached out to Stanley Nelson to, to 
you know, kind of spearhead these films. And he reached out to me, having uh, had a you know, fairly long collaboration with Stanley. We just done the Miles Davis documentary, which was nominated for a Grammy and won an even documentary Emmy. Um, and he said, you know, let's let's do these, and we'll do these two films in tandem. So that's how I came to be involved with them. You know, I was like, oh, that sounds like a great opportunity, and who better uh, to you know, kind of get my first directing credits on <laughs> than Harry Tubman and, and Frederick Douglass. It is an interesting coincidence that both Harry Tubman and Frederick Douglass were born in, in Maryland. And, of course, mm-hmm. one of the most interesting things about their story is Maryland itself, the kind of state that it was uh, in, in the years uh, leading up to the war between the states as a border state. Uh, and this is something that is mentioned in, in both of these films. Uh, explain to our listeners a little bit about what I'm talking about, what it meant to be a border state in the 1850s and uh, leading into the Civil War, and how that figured in the lives of both Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman. Right. Well, this was something that I hadn't really considered or knew about Maryland uh, before. The, I knew it was a border state. I knew that slavery existed in Maryland as it's you know, south of the Mason Dixon line. But what was unique about Maryland specifically was that it was the way that slavery existed in Maryland. Um, it didn't have a cotton industry, so it wasn't like that deep south, you know, large plantation slavery um, that most of us are familiar with. It was much smaller plantations, much smaller plots of land um, that had, you know, enslaved people working on them. But also specifically in um, Maryland, there was a whole different practices of how slavery played out. So, um, for instance, there was a practice of hiring out. Because you had smaller amounts of slaves, you would perhaps hire out your um, enslaved person to another, a neighboring plantation uh, for a fee. So it was like... um, Oh, almost like a, <laughs> a temp agency, if you will, <laughs> except these were enslaved people. Um, there was sometimes the opportunity for slaves to hire themselves out, which was you know, certainly unusual. Um, Harriet Tubman employed this, this method, and she was able to kind of earn some money with which she was hoping to purchase her own freedom. That, of course, never came to be, but she was able to kind of save money um, that was kind of going to help her in later years. Um, and also the fact in Maryland especially is that about half the black population in Maryland was enslaved and about half was free. Um, you know, about roughly 60,000, don't take my, don't, don't quote me on that number, but about roughly 60,000 to 60,000 um, enslaved black Americans as, as well as free black Americans. So you could really see what freedom looked like for another black, for another black person. You could intermingle with them. You could, you know, you worked alongside them. And most importantly, possibly, was that you could marry uh, someone that was free. Um, and this, of course, provided, you know, incredible conundrums for, you know, couples who were half enslaved and half free. Um, the enslaved person, of course, wanting to kind of either purchase or obtain their freedom by any means necessary. Um, and that was the situation that, that both Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman found themselves in having uh, both wed free uh, black Americans and wanting, using that as a, as a jumping point to really push for their own freedom. Mm. And of course, the fact was that they, because Maryland was a border state, they could almost literally see freedom. 
I mean, right across the border, immediately to the north, uh, a tantalizing possibility. And of course, they also lived, as did every other slave in Maryland and these other border states, lived with the real fear of being sold off to somebody and moved into the deep south where uh, where becoming free would have been a much more remote possibility. When it comes to Harriet Tubman, um, well, first of all, I think we should have you explain the intriguing title of your film, Visions of Freedom. Uh, the, the, I mean, in a general sense, one can understand what that title is about, but there is also a very specific reason, unique to Harriet Tubman, uh, why that title is so fitting. Explain. Yes. So, of course, there's the, uh, the literal meaning, visions of freedom, that she had a, an idea, uh, a, you know, almost a promise that she would uh, obtain freedom and help others obtain freedom as well. But there was also, um, when we're thinking of this title, a more lyrical reason, um, a lyrical, uh, I guess, aspect to the title, and, and that, that Harry Tubman was disabled. She was Injured very young, about, you know, as a young, probably a preteen, she was struck in the head with a heavy weight, which fractured her skull, and it gave her um, essentially seizures throughout the rest of her life. But these seizures, um, which I guess we would medically, possibly medically term seizures, um, she kind of, you know, called them fainting spells. But she would also um, describe them as like visionary activity, prophetic activity that God was speaking to her through when she would fall into one of these almost like narcoleptic, narcoleptic um, states. Um, she would fall asleep or she would fall into a seizure and faint. Um, but she would also describe um, what she would see, you know, pillars of fire, water, you know, water rushing, see, you know, hands reaching out to her. And she interpreted these, these um, episodes as, as messages from God. And so these visions... Um, she she figured them. She thought of them as like almost biblical uh, biblical visions that were directing her on what the, the avenues that she should take. First, to get her own freedom, and then to go back when she had attained her freedom to risk her own life and her own you know safety um, to go back and and liberate others. Amazing. One of the things that your film tells us about Harriet Tubman, this is something I did not know until I watched your film, is that at one point uh, she got an interesting idea uh, that ultimately kind of reshaped the nature of her own enslavement. And it was a way in which she, in a sense, brokered some control over the specifics of to whom she would be hired out and, and, and where she would go. Uh, this was huge in terms of, of shaping uh, the experiences that she had and, and shaped the person that she became. Explain to our listeners this intriguing agreement, I guess we could almost call it, that she worked out with her own owner that, in a sense, helped shape some of the specifics of her destiny in the years that she was a slave. Well, first and foremost, Harriet Tubman was an entrepreneur. I mean, she talked about smarts. She had street smarts, street smarts. She had the smarts of uh, nature. But she also knew how to kind of make money. <laughs> um, it, you know, it didn't allow her to purchase her own freedom. But she kind of knew, um, she was very shrewd in, in that she, um, as the way that slavery worked in Maryland, she had felt the lash of the whip. She had felt, you know, the beating. 
um, and as she grew older and like you know gained more skills, she realized that there was a way that she could kind of purchase a little more safety for herself, um, but also kind of do the things that she actually wanted to do that would allow her to see her family um, because they were on, you know scattered on more than one plantation. Um, so the way that slavery existed, as I mentioned before, was that you could um, an owner could hire could hire Harriet out to another another plantation, another owner. Um, and she figured, she deduced that she had skills that would be valuable to other plantation owners. So she struck a deal with her own owner um, that, you know, here's, here's the deal. I can go to another plantation, you can hire me out, um, and I can do these jobs, and I'll cut you in. <laughs> you can be cut in on this higher profit because I can do more at this other plantation um, and earn a higher wage, and then you get more money and I get more money. And so she was kind of able to kind of, you know, almost freelance herself out <laughs> to other plantations, learning new skills, learning different, um, learning different landscapes than the one that she was, you know, originally um, working on. And so in this way, she was able to kind of broaden her horizon, run the people that she knew, um, learn more about the, the landscape of Maryland, and ultimately all of these uh, all of these things that she learned in this practice would enable her to help get her free. It's just incredible. It, one gets a sense that that she had some idea of how valuable this would be. I mean, and 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 it and it Absolutely. made such a difference in terms of of the vision that she had for a new life for herself and a new life for her people. Uh, this is so crucial that she was able to do this. Your film also tells us that right around the year 1844, Harriet Tubman met and married John Tubman, who was himself a free man. And one of the most interesting things to try to understand is is about their relationship and how complicated things became when Harriet Tubman mm-hmm. uh, wanted to, uh, in a sense, seek freedom for herself. Explain kind of the complications of this with her husband, John. Well, you know, this is the 1840s, um, and, you know, a slavery is still the law of the land in a, you know, in a lot of places. And so there were a number of fugitive slave acts that were... Um, that were going around. Um, so even a free black person could never be completely secure in that. But if you stayed where you were with the people that you knew, you were that much more, you know, comfortable, I suppose. Um, so when Harriet was um, talking, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I don't know what their conversations would have had about children, but any children they would have had would have been enslaved because she herself was enslaved. And so when looking at having a, you know, a life, um, she knew that she, she always knew that she wanted to be free. Um, but for him, it would have been a much more risky proposition to kind of leave the, uh, the safety and comfort of, you know, the known freedom that he had in Maryland to perhaps give that up somewhere else, um, especially if they'd gotten caught. If they'd gotten caught, there's no guarantee that he would have been treated as a as a free person, <laughs> you know. They could have been, you know, they could have both been, cho- you know, you know, you know, caught as, you know, people suspected of being enslaved and then sent further south. So there was a, a huge danger for him in in perhaps trying to run away, you know, with with Harriet. And so that I mean, any free and enslaved marriage like that is, you know, is going to be fraught with 
that kind of conflict. But um, I suppose you would have to have one, uh, a partner with like a extreme um, courage <laughs> and fortitude to kind of take that chance. Unfortunately, John, John Tubman was not, um, I could say he wasn't that brave. <laughs> hmm. So it's interesting that Harriet Tubman then makes the decision to flee with her two brothers, Benjamin and, and Henry. And one of the things yeah. that prompts her to leave is that her slave owner had died. And uh, the wife he left behind, his widow, uh, was deeply in debt. And as so often would be the case, widows in that situation would sell off their slaves uh, uh, f- f- for the money. And so uh, Harriet saw slaves on that plantation being sold off into slavery down into the deep south presumably and did not want that fate for herself so she makes the decision to flee with her two brothers uh at that point in the film we are shown the runaway ad that was run uh for uh and 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 we're told that this was something that happened all the time these were published uh, in newspapers all across the country, runaway ads, and we again see the actual ad, the typeset of the actual ad for Harriet and her two brothers, uh, the, the, their owner seeking their return for a reward. It ma- just makes you realize the the odds uh, were so stacked against a slave trying to escape enslavement in those days. Oh, certainly, um, and that. Uh- that was a real revelation for me. Um, um, again, I, I feel like so many people think they know the Harriet, the story of Harriet Tubman, especially. Um, but it's like those kind of details that really impress upon a person the realities of her story, you know, the, the life that she lived and her story. The fact that there was a whole newspaper ad, you know, seeking to uh, capture her. You know, it, it's crazy. And um, it was it was really profound to kind of see that and put that section together because it was, because it was so common in doing the research, we realized that there, there's a database that I, that's run out of a, I believe Cornell university that has over a hundred thousand ads just like that of people um, who would run away to seek their freedom. And there's descriptions of them and, you know, they, they ran away on this date and they might be this cunning and might have a disguise or it might be dressed as a woman. <laughs> in, in teaching their freedom, and it's 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 so in, informative and and chilling in some in some ways that you know this was uh, so um, regular a practice, and slavery was so entrenched in the, in the fabric of American society that this was just accepted. Incredible. Mm. Well, ultimately, uh, Harriet's brothers, uh, I believe, uh, say that it is safer for them to return back to Maryland and in a sense back to captivity. But then Harriet escapes once more on her own and this time makes the 100-mile journey uh, to Philadelphia, which uh, your film tells us was a very important center for the abolitionist movement. And what a great place for Harriet Tubman to, to end up. By the way, in all of this, your film makes the point again and again that Harriet Tubman, in terms of physical stature, was a small woman, scarcely five feet tall. And uh, that really helps us appreciate 
all that she goes on to accomplish in her remarkable life. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's someone that, you know, would be very unassuming to look at, I suppose. Um, you know, small, dark woman. Um, but who knew what, what small packages can hold <laughs> and what impact they can have on, on not just, you know, uh, your life, but on the life and, and the course of history in America. Uh, yeah, so that, that she did this on foot, you know, especially that first time that she actually obtained freedom. She did this on foot. She walked herself into freedom. It's, it's, it's astounding to think about. Um, but it also impresses upon, and I hope a lot of young people take this away, is that, you know, here's someone that had all the limitations that you could possibly have on you, um, not just being enslaved, but being a, a woman, a black woman enslaved, um, and being small. Um, being illiterate in the terms that we understand it. You know, she could not read or write, but she had literacy in many other ways. But that never stopped her from obtaining her freedom and really having, uh, putting her thumbprint on American history. It's, 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 it's just tremendous, a tremendous story that we can all learn from. She goes on, of course, to be an ardent and effective abolitionist, and she becomes part of the speaking circuit. And of course, this is also something that figures prominently uh, in the life and career of Frederick Douglass as well. Explain the nature of this speaking circuit. It's kind of hard to imagine nowadays uh, what this sort of looked like and the place that it had in American life in those days. Well, it's actually not that hard. I mean, there's speakers bureaus now and people go around and talk about their little TED Talks. Think of it in that way. There was like their TED Talks on abolition in the in the, mm. in the 1800s, um, and she so she would go around as someone, especially who had who had lived the experience. Um, one of the points that we wanted we wanted to underline underscore early on in both films is that the original abolitionists were the enslaved people themselves. Who more uh, better to speak on what slavery is, the impact it has on a life and the why it should be abolished than someone who was enslaved. Um, and that, and that uh, in, in, in tandem with that, is that the Underground Railroad, of course, then had to be, if that's the case, then the Underground Railroad, by, by necessity, had to be a majority black operation. Because how could it not be? I mean, anyone, you know, whites and blacks working, working together would be suspicious to see. But, you know, black people talking to each other, you know, relaying information, because, you know, they could just be working if you see them, you know, conversing with each other um, in small groups, of course. Um, but that's something, that's how information could be relayed. It, there's no way the Underground Railroad would have worked without the participation of uh, enslaved and free uh, black Americans. And so, yeah, the speaking circuit was like, uh, like I said, kind of like a TED Talk of the day. Um, what's amazing is that how you know widespread it can be and how many dates one could have. It was written about, Harry Tubman was written about in the newspapers of the day as, as being someone who had liberated herself and telling her story. Um, and so that was also really interesting to me to see that so much of her story was kind of documented at the time. But, you know, what we learn in school is so surface level to that. Um, so when you go back and research, like, say, your New York Times or, your, you know, your Boston Herald, whatever these old newspapers are, and you go back and see the 1800s, you'll almost certain to find Harriet Tubman's name in them from, um, from this period. Mm. 
Well, Harriet Tubman, of course, goes on to become one of the most tireless figures uh, in the so-called Underground Railroad. And your film does a wonderful job of kind of chronicling uh, some of those uh, exploits as she returns to Maryland again and again and again. I think uh, more than Mm -hmm. a dozen times she returns to Maryland uh, with the intention of helping bring slaves uh, out of their bondage into the freedom uh, of the North. Your film goes on to tell us about a a truly remarkable instance during the Civil War when Harriet Tubman uh, began to play a a slightly different role, uh, but with the very, very same cause uh, as a spy for the Union and ultimately as a key figure in one of the most successful raids uh, in the entire Civil War when hundreds of people are brought out to freedom. Uh, Just briefly sketch a little bit of what I am talking about, this remarkable moment in the career of Harriet Tubman. Right. So Harry Tubman was, uh, in a lot of ways, I call her the one-woman field team six. Here was someone that, you know, could gather intelligence, uh, used all her skills to, you know, penetrate enemy territory and bring out enslaved people. And that's just before, not even before the war happened. So once um, she goes south during, you know, once the war begins, she goes further south. And because she's done so much work on the Underground Railroad, because she's done work on the electric circuit, she was a really personable person. She knew how to talk to people. Um, and as and working as a nurse, uh, uh, tending to, you know, soldiers, especially black soldiers who had, you know, were involved in the war at that time, and especially um, what was called contraband, um, I guess slaves who were uh, liberated in some ways um, from the South, or, you know, either by just leaving or, you know, taken, uh, taken in by Union troops. She was gathering intelligence from them. Uh, what what plantations they'd come from, uh, what what they'd seen while they were there, what the landscape was like between here and there, uh, what she could expect if, if what what could be expected if they traveled further south, how many troops were on this plantation, how many armaments, that kind of thing. And so she was gathering this intelligence and you know went to the Union generals and said that we can devise a way to strike um, at a particular, this is the Combi River River raid that she's, you know, especially um, instrumental in in, in attacking um, in this battle. Uh, she devised a way that they could go save up, sail up the Combi River um, because she knew the intelligence of where the landmines were hidden in the water. She knew what plantations were there, where they were located, how many troops were hiding on each plantation, how many. Um, armaments were on each plantation, and how many slaves were, <laughs> were, were on each plantation. And so they sailed up the river, avoiding the landmines, um, and she's like on the hull of the boat singing. And, you know, there's, you know, breathless accounts in the newspapers of seeing this black woman on the hull of a ship singing as they come sailing up the river. And they hardly had to fire any shots, because when they saw this fleet of boats coming up, a lot of the, a lot of the, the troops fled knowing that they didn't have a lot of resources, you know, to kind of defend themselves. But it's, it's, it's an incredible story, and I encourage everyone to read more about it beyond what we were able to include in the film. It's really thrilling. It's an incredible story. It really, really is. And, of course, once the war is over and the hard work and the sometimes disappointing work of Reconstruction begins, uh, Harriet Tubman continues to be 
a very, very active figure uh, in the cause, ultimately befriending the likes of Susan B. Anthony and, and many others. So working hard for the cause, not only uh, of, at that point, uh, the, the cause of, of women's suffrage and continuing to work for uh, the betterment of the lives of, 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 of other blacks. Uh, it's an incredible life, which ends in 1913 when she dies at the age of 91. And uh, uh, it's, it's an incredible story you tell very well. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Nicole London, documentarian, uh, talking about two different films that recently aired on PBS, available for streaming via, via pbs.org. Both of these films dealing with remarkable people from the state of Maryland, and the second, the brilliant Frederick Douglass. Um, I wonder if you could just summarize for us the way in which you learned things about Frederick Douglass that you had not known before. I mean, what what sort of experience of discovery was it for you? Or was it more that uh, you already knew pretty much all of this but had to figure out a way to shape it around a particular theme? Oh, yeah, well, Frederick Douglass uh, as well. I assumed I knew a lot about him. Um, I knew that he'd written his narrative. Um, <laughs> uh, but I didn't, I guess I'd never really put together that he wrote three autobiographies. Um, I never realized that he had had three, um, that he had, had been the most photographed man in America um, of the 1800s. That's something I never would have known outside of this film, I, I believe. Um, and just how much that he actually did. I knew he had been a statesman, but like the arc of his life, how much he was able to cram in. Um, how he obtained his freedom, I never really had, had really dived into. So everything about Cedric Douglas was a, really a revelation to me. Because, again, so much of what we learn in school is so surface level. Um, you know, I was in school a while ago, so. <laughs> the scholarship, of course, has advanced since, since I was in school or grade school. But um, it really impressed upon me how much, how much more there is to learn about these two Americans. One of the uh, most interesting uh, facets of the, the, the early life of Frederick Douglass, and it tells us so much about who he is to become, is a, a, an instance when he is a very, very young boy and a slave, and he is, in the words of one person in your film, trading biscuits for words. Trading biscuits for words. Explain to our listeners uh, what that phrase entails and the significance of it in terms of what Frederick Douglass would ultimately go on to do and accomplish. Yes, so, you know, he, he talks about in his autobiography about being sent to Baltimore, um, I guess because he was one of the better workers. Who knows? <laughs> he was one of the better workers. He was supposed to be kind of minding um, the owner's son. Um and there's a passage that we ultimately had to cut out of the film, but he talks about being hungry as a slave, that, you know, there was often not enough to eat. And sometimes he was, sometimes as, as slaves, they were fed from an actual trough, like a page trough. Um, and so he was always kind of a, a hungry little boy. But when the owner's wife would give them biscuits, you know, he would able to, you know, get some biscuits. Um, he, he was someone that, who was hungry but who risked his hunger, um, who decided that being hungry for knowledge was more important than 
the hunger in his in his body. Um, so he, when he was trading those biscuits, he was literally trading something that would sustain, you know, sustain him for a day. You know, keep him going. Um, he was trading those biscuits to learn words from other boys um, because he thought sustaining his mind, his intelligence, um, and ultimately his own uh, self worth was more important than feeding himself, literally feeding himself um, and keeping his belly full. It's it's really profound, and you know, it's um, it's something I hope that people can take away from from his story. Mm. And the way he ultimately is able to wield words is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, one thing your film tells us is that the story of Frederick Douglass might not have unfolded the way it did were it not for a woman uh, he meets in Baltimore named Anna Murray. Tell us why Anna Murray is so crucial to the story of Frederick Douglass and, in a sense, his personal evolution. Well, I'll tell you, first of all, all of my girlfriends, when they'd heard that I was doing a story uh, uh, directing a project of uh, Frederick Douglass, they was like, you have to talk about Anna Murray Douglass. There's no way you cannot mention her. She never gets mentioned. <laughs> I was like, I will, I will, no way. <laughs> uh, and, of course, uh, one of his descendants um, in the film, Ken Morris, is uh, of the same mind. And, you know, if we could do more on Anna Murray Douglas, we would have. Um, but, yes, she was absolutely essential to his life and to his getting his freedom. Um, as I mentioned in Harry Tubman, she was a free black woman um, that lived in Baltimore. Uh, and when they met and married, she knew that she didn't want their children to be enslaved uh, or their father to be enslaved. And so her input, her resources is really what made his obtaining his freedom possible. Um, and then, of course, beyond that, you know, in terms of, you know, getting him a suit that he could wear that would disguise him as a sailor um, to go to, to get up to, um, to uh, New York to freedom, um, that her, uh, whatever money that she had put together would help fund their life um, beyond that. Um, but she was also someone that was not literate. And so, the fact that she was able to do all these things, um, you know, although she was free, but she did have that, you know, kind of a drawback to her is, is really remarkable. Um, it's kind of a lament that we don't see him write much about her, but then it could be that she didn't want him to write about her. Well, we might never know, but I, I can't, you can't state enough how important she is to the, to his story. And then of course, you know, writ larger, the story of America. Hmm. Well, ultimately, Frederick Douglass is able to escape to the North and uh, makes uh, a name for himself, uh, in part because of, of meeting one of the most important abolitionists of the era, a man by the name of William Lloyd um, Garrison. Is, is that his last name? The editor of okay. The Liberator. Yes. And... Um, and Frederick Douglass, a bit like Harriet Tubman, ends up traveling the the the, uh, the lecture circuit and is an extraordinary force. Um, but to explain to our listeners what he did when charges began to be raised. Uh, I should say doubts raised about whether or not Frederick Douglass uh, was in fact uh, a, a former slave. Why were were some people doubting that that was possible? Um, I think it was because he was too too articulate, too good looking. 
Um, <laughs> he was just too much everything, too good a speaker. And so, you know, it just it became, he's like, I don't know, this guy can't be it. There's, there's no way this man could have been a slave. He's too dignified. He's too, he's just too much. <laughs> and so um, I think that's how, um, that, that's one why he needed to, to write his own story and, and name it as, you know, as narrated, as written by himself so that people would know that this is my story. Um, despite the way I look, this is the experience I've had. And, and especially because of this, because of how I present myself, because of how I speak and, uh, and how learned I am, um, what, by what right is there to hold anyone un, in bondage? You know, look, look at the potential that I hold within myself. We're holding other people back from this potential. You've already touched on the fact that uh, Frederick Douglass was uh, very often photographed. In fact, uh, very likely the most photographed man of the 19th century, black or white. And part of it was because he understood the power of the photograph. Maybe more so than just about anybody of his time. Explain what he saw uh, as the the great sort of liberating potential of the photograph and the photographic image. Um, what's remarkable, especially about Douglas and his understanding of the photograph, is that photography is in its infancy. It had only existed maybe 10 to 15, maybe 20 years. Um, so the fact that he knew and understood what photography could mean, that this is a real representation of a person rather than a portrait, which is an artistic interpretation of a person, um, that this was a kind of document. It was a kind of proof of, of what, what one's eyes and experience was, was telling them. Um, and he understood that if I could present myself um, if black Americans could present themselves as they actually are, as they actually look, then that would help kind of refute the uh, stereotypic images that were so prevalent of the time. Um, that, that would refute the idea that, that black Americans were subhuman, that that would refute the idea that slavery um, was uh, a viable institution that could continue. And so... It was he understood that representation matters, and so um, he acted upon that by you know presenting himself as as the chief example um, against all of that. Um, it was it, it's been really incredible to think about that there's someone at you know over a hundred years ago that understood that. It's, it's amazing. Absolutely, and at one point, one of the guests in your film says, in a sense. Frederick Douglass was not afraid of the camera. And then we see one image after another in which that really proves to be true. There is something about the way he is staring right at the lens of the camera and, uh, and, and in a sense, relishing the opportunity for the, for, the, uh, for the camera to capture his majestic uh, figure and face. Uh, and, and it's really amazing to think about the, the, the power of that. Uh, let's spend yeah. just let's spend a couple of minutes talking about Frederick Douglass's somewhat complicated relationship with our 16th president, Abraham Lincoln. 
and uh, uh, I appreciate the fact that your 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 book takes the time to do this. Uh, your film takes the time to uh, explore the complexity of their relationship, and in a sense, the the fine line that Abraham Lincoln was walking in 1860 as he was running for and ultimately elected U.S. president at such a turbulent point in our history. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't delve into it as much as we wanted to, having a film that's a little under an hour and trying to tackle as much, even though we um, called it Becoming Frederick Douglass and limited it to a point um, pretty much right after the Civil War. Um, he did so much on that time and had so much influence on so many people. It was really a challenge. But, yeah, his relationship with, with Lincoln was incredibly interesting. The fact that he had the ear of the president um, and could influence him in any way. Um, I do believe he went to the inauguration. Um, and he is photographed there, but very small. It's very hard to see <laughs> in, in the, the sea of faces that are there. But, you know, Lincoln welcomed him um, you know, with with open arms at at that inauguration. So, I I don't know if you could really call it so much a friendship as you know, but it was a relationship. Um, and it's it's incredible that someone that had kind of become, you know, gotten himself out of slavery was able to to rub shoulders with the next with the sitting president. It's it's really remarkable. But absolutely, he had an influence on Lincoln's decision, especially in terms of. Um, allowing black soldiers to participate in the war. Um, and his own two sons served as well. So, I mean, we couldn't go into the, the finer details, but we, we did want to make a point to highlight that they had this relationship and that, you know, Frederick Douglass was, was instrumental in kind of, you know, helping Lincoln shape what his policy would be, especially regarding slavery. Mm. Towards the end of your film, uh, the statement is made that Frederick Douglass was one of the most complicated people uh, in our nation's history. What made Frederick Douglass so complicated? Um, it, 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 I think it's complicated for the time, and I guess you know, looking back at um, at the time he lived in, he was complicated. Um, I, don't know, I don't find it so much complicated as, as you know fascinating. <laughs> hmm. But I, I yeah, not like he was, you know, his later life might have been complicated. There's this whole confusing situation with women in his life. <laughs> hmm. um, later on, um, he did, uh, he, he married a, a white woman later on in his life, but he himself was uh, thought to be half white. So I don't, I'm not sure that's part of it, but he did have a complicated relationship with a, a, a German woman. Um, but I think that one of the things that they, people think of, well, I imagine people think of him being complicated, was that he was fairly radical for the time. Um, you know, when we think about, you know, four million slave people and slave people, we often think about them in terms of, you know, like the benevolent, um, you know, here he's a speaker, you know, he's an orator, he's kind of gentle, and he's a gentle man in that way. But he was really kind of radical in this thinking about how some black Americans could handle uh, obtaining their freedom. He thought, um, especially during the, when the Fugitive Slave Act was enacted in 1850, that one way to kind of combat that was to, you know, just to make a few dead kidnappers. Um, <laughs> that, you know, you know, kind of tacitly giving blacks the idea, uh, you know, the, um, you know, 
saying you could, you know, if you had to kill to to obtain your freedom, if you had to kill to maintain, you know, to to make sure that you weren't kidnapped back into slavery, you should do so. Um, and I think that, in a lot of ways, was considered radical. It's like a Matt Turner kind of um, attitude towards uh, towards enslavement um, that a lot of people I don't think subscribe to him then or now. Um, so uh, perhaps that's what people are thinking about when they say complicated. But you know, I think complicated is is really just another way to say that he was a man, a man like any other who had you know flaws, who had. Um, you know, had some you know, vices to some, and um, he had uh, you know attitudes that were not as um, maybe not as benevolent as everybody thinks of historical figures. We always think of him as like benign past life, but he was a flesh and blood man who who had who had, uh, who had attributes uh, wonderful and 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 some flaws as well. Mm. And of course, a a fierce advocate for uh, justice and. Uh... Mm-hmm. Not afraid of anything or anyone, and of course, right. a, a, a man of remarkable eloquence. And I so appreciate the fact that your your film includes uh, searing, in, incredible examples of of that gift, including uh, his uh, marvelous uh, statement on what is the Fourth of July to a slave, yeah. uh, which really resonates powerfully to this very day. Both films are beautifully done. Uh, the one we've been just talking about called Becoming Frederick Douglass. Before that, we talked about Harriet Tubman, Visions of Freedom. Uh, both of these films coming from Maryland Public Television, since both of these people born in Maryland and, uh, and an important part of that state's history. And both of these films, which have already aired on PBS, can be viewed uh, via the streaming of pbs.org and i urge everybody listening to this to seek out both films and to watch them you will learn a lot uh and uh one of the people responsible largely for both of these films nicole london nicole london thank you so much for taking time to uh, have this conversation with me and congratulations on the great work you did on both of these films thank you so much i appreciate you having me